One brother told me this morning, I now have a fudge factor of 2.2. I said I'd preach the 13 chapters of Hebrews in 13 weeks. It's been 29. That's an exaggeration factor of 2.1 or 2. So if I say there's five minutes left, you can multiply that by 2.2 and it means 11. We started several weeks ago to study the subject of marriage for a number of good reasons. I'm not going to go over all those reasons right now, but I hope that you can remember them. I hope if you can't remember them, you'll get the tapes from this series and listen to them in the privacy of your homes. I want all the families in this church to maximize their marriage. That's part of New Testament Christianity also, along with praying for our government. I have been through several myths in recent weeks as we've dealt with errors that have sprung up in human thinking about marriage. We've tried to put those to rest so they will not be causing trouble in this congregation. Tonight, I want to try to conclude by running through a number of practical, very simple, very short, except the first one, of recommendations or rules to help you in your marriages. Rule number one this evening is to use God's ordained means for help in marital problems. Where do Christians typically go today when they've got trouble in their marriage? First of all, they'll go to the Christian bookstore to pick up the latest of 50 titles that are available there by someone who's assumed they have authority to write about improving your marriage. That's the first place they go. The second place, after their problems don't disappear by following the advice in the paperbacks, is to seek Christian psychologists. I question whether there is such a thing in this world. It's sort of like a Christian scientist in the way that that term is used. Or it's like grape nuts. They're neither grapes nor nuts. And you wonder sometimes about Christian psychologists. Because psychology, as a science, is opposed to the Word of God. How can you be a Christian psychologist without throwing out everything that it stands for in the word psychology. There's one Christian psychologist I would recommend you read. But when you read him, you won't find any psychology. You'll only find scripture. And that's Jay Adams. If you want to read a less popular author today who writes on marriage and family problems, read Jay Adams. When you read Jay Adams, you'll not be getting superficial, 20th century type milk toast thinking. You'll get the Word of God and everything that other authors will be calling immaturity, slow development, sibling rivalry, and all the other euphemistic terms he'll call sin. And he'll give the Bible solution for dealing with sin because either it is right or it is wrong. We don't, we don't disguise things with their euphemistic terms. We call them sin. Drunkenness is not a sickness. It's never been a sickness. Drunkenness is a sin. And it should be dealt with as a sin. If you want to read a Christian psychologist, read Jay Adams. I trust most of what he says. Don't read him about baptism. Don't read him about the sonship of Christ. Don't read him about several other things. But on practical issues, he'll give you some sound biblical reinforcement by a man who has held some very influential professorships in some very famous universities 
in psychology. After the Christian psychologists don't work, they usually run to the world and the world's humanistic psychiatrists, the social workers who sit and try to put a marriage back together. Are these sources ever right? Do Christian bookstores, Christian psychologists, and worldly psychiatrists, are they ever right? Sometimes they might stumble on the truth. It's been said of such men and their works that you need to eat the chicken and throw away the bones. But that doesn't put it very accurately, because when I think of that, I think of a nice drumstick before my eyes that has meat hanging off all over it that I can see clearly. If you want to use the analogy of chicken bones and meat, you need to go into the garbage at the end of a day at Kentucky Fried Chicken and claw through 400 pounds of bones looking for a little piece of gristle. That's what you'll get. That's a better description. Are they ever right? Sometimes. Have men ever found diamonds in sewers? Sometimes. But if you want to find a diamond, where do you go? The jewelry store. If you want to find the truth, where do you go? God's Word. God's Word will find you the answers. God's Word is absolutely sufficient for marriage problems. Why hunt for God's truth in the sewer of man's thinking? Why read a book where you're going to have to read through all of this subtle, deceptive thinking on the part of modern-day psychologists in order to pick up a germ that you could have had explained in the Word of God. There are no new concepts for marriage. Do you realize that? In 6,000 years, has man added one thing to marriage? Has, there, has one Christian psychologist come along to give even one bit of help to marriage that wasn't already recorded? You say that people today aren't practicing the Bible. That ought not to be true in this church. The answers are here. God ordained the institution, and there is no Christian psychologist that can add one cent worth of advice to God's Word. If you'll saturate yourself with God's Word, you have every concept for marriage you need. There are no new concepts. You know what's wrong with marriage in America today? Men and women do not practice the Bible. That's the problem. It's not that there's new concepts that we need to grab a hold of. They're old concepts that we need to practice more perfectly. Did any other generation have the benefit of all these Christian psychologists? They're a brand new thing. No other generation's ever had them. I mean, you go to the store now and say, could you show me the section on marriage? It's those four shelves over there. There's books proliferating everywhere on marriage. No other generation has had it. Our marriage is better today. Our marriage is better today. The proof's in the pudding. With things like that, have they helped us? No, they haven't. Things aren't getting better. Even in Christian circles, they're a mess. Marriages are a mess. There, we don't need new concepts. We need a new attitude toward the Word of God and to practice it. It's already given us the answers. Well, what is God's? what are God's ordained means for finding solutions to marriage problems? We read one this evening, Proverbs 13 and verse 20. He that walketh with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. Means number one, make sure you have good marriages for friendship. 
make sure that you and your wife spend some time with some other couples in this congregation that have good marriages. You walk with wise men, you'll be wise. Psalm 37 and verse 37 puts it this way. Mark the perfect man and behold the upright, for the end of that man is peace. You want a peaceful marriage? Then mark a couple that have a peaceful marriage and try to be like them. A good marriage is a marriage that lines up with Scripture, not that necessarily meets with your approval. Your wife might come to you and say, I think we ought to get together with such and such a couple. I like the way he treats his wife. If you're a good husband, you'll think through that all the way and make sure that husband and wife are practicing the Word of God and they're not practicing something your wife thinks might be comfortable. A good marriage is not necessarily one you approve of. It's one God approves of. That's a good marriage. We need to associate with good marriages. Wisdom from the mistakes of others and learning of others is is a good way to learn. If you can learn from the mistakes of others, then you don't have to go through the same learning process yourself. Why reinvent the wheel when by associating with some other couples that are possibly, probably, older than we are, can tell us how they handled similar difficulties? That's just being wise. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 27 and verse 17, 27, 17, iron sharpeneth iron. So a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend, and if one man can sharpen the countenance of his friend, a couple can sharpen the countenance of another marriage. The first means God's given to us in his word is to seek good marriages and associate with them. And remember, if you're seeking for help from another married couple, make sure you do more listening than telling. It's amazing. A couple will say, you know, we need to get with so-and-so, so we can hear about their experiences and learn how they have overcome some of the difficulties in their marriage. And when the four people get together, party A that started the meeting, that needs the help, does as much talking as party B. When party A's got the problems, they ought to sit there and beg to hear all that they can instead of talking. Learning comes by listening, not by speaking. Next point. The Bible says, confess your faults one to another and seek their prayers and provocation. James 5.16, confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that she may be healed. That applies to marriages. Hebrews 10.24 tells us to consider one another, to provoke unto love and to good works. These are God's ordained means. You won't find a psychologist in the Word of God. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a Christian counselor. Think about that for a minute. There is no such thing in the Bible as a Christian counselor, psychologist, or psychiatrist. You have brothers in this church that you can confess your faults to and seek their prayers and ask them to provoke you in certain ways, and hopefully they'll do that. Don't wait for problems to become severe before you seek help. Give help a chance. Many times we consider our marriages sacred ground. No one else should ever see through the veil. You know, we we like to think of it as the holy place. And no one should ever see the problems going on behind the veil. And when we finally rip the veil in half to show our problems to some brother or to the pastor or some group that we're trying to get help from, it's too late. 
because things are so far developed. Don't wait for problems to get severe before you seek help. Give help a chance. Isn't preventive maintenance superior to major repairs later? Don't we try to practice that with our automobiles? You know, change the oil now. Doesn't the uh, Fram man say, pay me now or pay me later? And you know the payment later is going to be far greater if you don't take care of things now. We need to be managing our marriages on a current basis. You know, it's been said an ounce of prevention's worth a pound of cure. There's a lot of wisdom in that statement. Don't wait till things are in bad straits and you're talking about separating. On a continual basis, make sure your marriage is being maximized. When you go for help, make sure you're ready to listen. Look at Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. This goes back to the illustration I just made a moment ago. You sit down with a couple and you do more talking than you do listening. We need to guard against that. Proverbs 1.5, a wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. Look at chapter 9, verse 7. He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man and he will love thee. Verse 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. There's different types of men in this world. When you sit down to talk to a couple or to your pastor, be ready to listen instead of talk. A wise man will hear and will increase in learning. It's impossible to help those who are not willing to help themselves or who are not ready to be helped. It's impossible to help them. You can foam away with the Word of God, quoting every relevant passage of Scripture in the entire Bible, and if someone isn't willing to hear and to learn and to correct, you're wasting your breath. They're a scorner and they're a fool. Don't waste your time with them. And I hope there's no such person in this congregation. An attitude of giving up guarantees failure. Don't do that. Don't give up. Let's work on a continual basis to solve our problems. Look at Titus chapter 2. We're covering God's ordained means for solving marriage problems. First, have friendship with some good marriages and associate with them. Men do not like to be shamed by being in the presence of a man who treats his wife better than he treats his own. Women do not like to be shamed by being in the presence of a woman who loves her husband, and it's obvious, better than she does. There's one very good reason to be together. Constant provocation without ever saying a word. Just doing and living and behaving the way you normally do, you get provoked. I've already said enough on that point from my own standpoint. I'm not going to be whipped in any area like that, and I hope that all of you look at it the same way. Some of you men have had certain practices better than I have had toward my wife, God helping me. I'll shame you before it's all over. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. The aged women likewise, this is what Titus is to do to the aged women, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness. They, they live holy lives, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers, 
of good things. Oh, for some old women that like to be teachers, but that who are holy women, and they're holy in their conduct. Verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. An important ministry for the aged women to be teachers. Aged women are to be teachers, and it's a minister's job to remind them of that fact. And notice the issues that are contained in these two verses. These are practical issues relating to marriage. But it takes a woman who is sober, who loves her husband, who loves her children, who is obedient to her own husband, and all of the other characteristics here to be able to do that. And that is a means that God has ordained a good woman that is a holy woman who has been instructed in the Word of God is so far superior to any Christian psychologist the comparison is irreverent to the woman. who's grounded in the Word of God and who lives a holy life. Use your pastor. Supposedly, the Word of God was given to the man of God, and 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us that that Scripture is able to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, and it doesn't say for hand-holding. It says for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction. Now, I've tried to do most of that publicly. We have longer services than any church you know about. And we have two of them a Sunday. And I try to communicate a lot of knowledge in four hours every Sunday. In doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. That's what I've been called to do. I'll do some of that privately. But don't come expecting some new novel idea. Come expecting me, if you're a woman, to hear about submission to your husband. And if you're a man, come expecting to hear about nourishing and cherishing your wife. That's how you make a marriage better. If you can find me a marriage problem that can't be traced back to one of those two things, I'll say uncle. I doubt if I'll have to say it. Most marriage problems can be traced right back to those, one of those two root causes or both in a marriage. Is there any other ordained means? If I borrow Brother Lauren Smith's jigsaw and I tear the power cord off it or my children tear the power cord off and Brother Lauren Smith comes to me when I return the jigsaw and I say, here, Brother Lauren, here's your jigsaw and here's the power cord. They got separated somehow while I had it. And he says, I think you ought to replace it. How is that difference solved in the church? What passage of Scripture would you run me to first? Matthew chapter 18. For we are told, If a brother trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If, you, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. If he won't hear you, take with you one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established and confront him with the group. If he'll not hear the group, then take it before the church and the church will adjudicate in all matters of personal offense like that. 
that are called small matters in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 deals with the same subject, doesn't it? When it says in 1 Corinthians 6, Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Where am I headed? 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 5. What is a wife called when it comes to the church of God? 1 Corinthians 9, 5, the Apostle Paul said, Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? God ordained the church for matters of personal offense requiring arbitration. He did not ordain worldly social workers to be arbitrators or to settle a dispute between a husband and a wife. A husband and a wife are no more than a brother and a sister who happen to sleep together and live together. That is one of the points I've tried to make in this series of messages. It's not some inviolate relationship that the church can't get involved in if there is a problem that reaches those proportions. If you cannot solve a private offense between you and your husband or you and your wife privately, then take one or two more and get it solved. We understand that very plainly when it involves two brothers. Now, there's going to be feelings involved when there's two brothers. But you're a little horrified when you think of your husband and wife, aren't you? And your brothers and sisters, if you can't solve your problems at home under the authority of God's word, using the other means he's given, he has given a final means. And that's Matthew 18. If a brother or a sister trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained not only your brother and sister, you've gained your husband or your wife. What if he won't? What if she won't? If it's a matter that can be established by one or two other witnesses, then take witnesses. If it reaches proportions worthy of that kind of effort. Remember, though, in situations like that, you're going to need one or two more who are aware of the situation who could be witnesses. A marriage is no more than a brother and a sister in the church who happen to sleep with each other and live with each other during the week. Their relationship outside the church does not change what is to take place in the church. We have members of this congregation who work for one another. One's a master, one's a servant. Does that mean they can never use Matthew 18 with each other? Where is the scripture that gives us that exclusion? Some of you wives may feel that you have no recourse. God's word has given you recourse. If you have a brother that is behaving obnoxiously toward you, and it can be established by witnesses, you have a recourse. Because if he's violating the word of God by not nourishing and cherishing you, it can come before the church where he will be corrected or excluded. Because that offense is equal to or greater than any other offense we might deal with, such as the jigsaw that I've used as an example so many times before. You know, some will bark. And I can hear the barking now. Some will bark 
against the church's involvement in marriages. But then guess where they will go? To worldly counselors. It's incredible. It is incredible. They'll go to the world before the unjust to have their marriage problems settled, and they won't settle them before the just, the saints, that God has ordained to judge in small matters. Some think marital problems are sacrosanct. They're absolutely private. How so? How are they private? What makes them private? It's a relationship between a brother and sister. You mean to tell me that children can't come before this church and follow Matthew 18 to protect themselves against their parents? Where do those other relationships that are outside the church affect the relationship of a brother and sister in the church? I'll run Matthew 18 just as far as it goes when it says, if a brother. And all of you women in this congregation listening to me right now are married to brothers. Because he happens to be your husband, doesn't make any difference. Because a brother in this church may happen to be your father, doesn't make any difference. Because a brother in this church may be your master, that doesn't make any difference. You still have this church as your final source of adjudication in a difference. Those are God's ordained means. Pursue friendship with godly marriages. Confess your faults to others. Use older women. Use your pastor. And if you have to, use the church and your brethren to confront your partner. Rule number two. Are you able to forget the past faults of your partner? Now, I'm going to cover some points so fast you'll miss them if you blink mentally. Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 9. Proverbs 17 and verse 9. He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but he that repeateth a matter separateth very friends. Proverbs 17, 9. If you want to maximize your marriage, you'll forget the past faults of your partner. You repeat a matter, you're separating between you and your partner. If you're seeking love, if you're wanting to build love into your relationship, remember, you can seek and build love You do it by not repeating the past. The past is gone. You don't bring it up again to beat your partner with it. Hurtful reminders are such as infidelity in the past or any premarital fornication that existed when you married your partner. Forget it. Don't you dare bring that up. Threats of separation. Maybe your partner once threatened you that they were going to leave. Don't beat them with that. If they've repented for it, don't bring it up again. If they've had some past behavior, don't constantly remind them of it. Allow them the liberty to change. Don't constantly remind them of the way it used to be. And you know how you were. I just can't trust you yet. That will separate between a man and his wife. And remember, the Bible tells us to the degree that we forgive others is the degree that God will forgive us. And if you're constantly beating your partner with the past, I fear that God is going to beat you for the past also. Rule number three, use God-honoring speech always with your partner. Look at Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1. Proverbs 15, 1. A soft answer turneth away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. If your partner is angry, if your partner is confronting you, how do you respond? Grievously or with a soft answer? A soft answer wins, brethren. The Word of God tells us it does. You respond with grievous words, you'll gender strife. 
Then you've got to fight because it takes two to fight, my mommy told me long, long time ago. But if you're a soft answer, you end the fight. Learn to use gracious, God-honoring speech. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Always with grace. Colossians chapter 4. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. Always with grace, seasoned with salt. Sometimes you need to be a little salty, but it should always be gracious. When you're in a confrontation with your partner, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we brethren are to dwell together, love his brethren. It's said in verse 8, be pitiful, be courteous, verse 9, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. When your partner rails on you, railing is hard, offensive speech. When your partner rails on you, bless them. Not in the way that we use that word sometimes when we say bless them out. Bless them in the sense of this word that God has ordained that we should all inherit a blessing. Actually bless them. While they're standing there with the veins popping out in their neck, pointing their finger at you and railing at you, bless them. Bless them. You know how the Bible says, be an overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You love your enemy and you're able to heap a coal, coals of fire on their head. If you bless when they're railing, what in the world's going to happen? It's going to crush them if you're able to do that. Use God-honoring speech at all times with your partner. Respect each other when you have a confrontation. Respect should work this way. The Bible tells women to reverence their husbands. If you have a sit-down discussion or a stand-up discussion, however you do yours, or a laying-down discussion, how do you women respond? The Bible says you to reverence your husbands. This is hard to do during a fight, isn't it? To reverence your husband while you're in the midst of a confrontation? The wife can potentially end all fights by practicing that to the nth degree and simply submitting absolutely when she gets into a difference with her husband. She can end the fights. Just submit absolutely. You're right. I'll do it. I'll do it if he's not right. And submit. And reverence his position of authority. When you must express disagreement, which ought to be a rare thing, ought to be a very rare thing for wives to have to express disagreement since they're supposed to reverence their husbands and make his desires theirs, do it with the utmost of fear. The Bible tells men to honor their wives. When there's a confrontation, this is also hard to do during a fight, isn't it? To honor your wife. Give her an exalted position of importance, not above you, but a high position, and to honor her for who she is. Men should strive to hear their wives as they wish their bosses would hear them when they have a difference with them. We all know how we want our bosses to listen to us when we have a difference with them. Do you listen to your wife the same way? Hopefully that makes it practically 
understandable. Your wife can add a third-party objectivity to certain things. She can add a female perspective. She can be helpful. Recognize her for that value and listen to her and honor her. The Bible says two are better than one, even a wife. And men need women, so listen to her. If men would honor their wives when their wives come up with ideas, suggestions, recommendations, differences, corrections sometimes, and wives were always reverencing their husbands, we'd have differences handled a whole lot better than we often do. Give your spouse the credit they deserve for their good points. Sometimes we're always mentioning the negatives. We're always criticizing. It's a temperamental weakness. Give your spouse the credit they deserve for their good points. I read over there in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus Christ reading the riot act to several churches. But he does point out what they're doing right, doesn't he? You know what the Apostle Paul thought of the church at Corinth. But he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I praise you, brethren, that ye keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. That church did have its good points. And Paul would mention those good points. This is the word of God. Mention good points, even if there are some bad points. It is a fact of our existence that praise is a positive reward that motivates. Do you ever give your spouse any commendation for their good points? When you are looking at another couple's marriage, when they've come to you and asked for help, if they do that, and I hope there'll be more of that in the next five years, remember to specify the problems in that marriage. Don't let someone come to you and just say, everything's falling apart. How can you help a marriage where, quote, everything's falling apart, unquote? Some temperament types, that's the only way they can describe problems. Everything's falling apart. The world's coming to an end. Nothing's going right because they're extremists in their speech. Make sure you isolate on specific problems. Proper submission by the wife and proper love by the husband are the two big issues. Go right after those two. Most marriage problems do not lie outside those two issues. You've either got a wife who isn't fully submitted to her husband or you've got a husband who isn't treating his wife the way he should, or both. You seldom have a husband and a wife doing both, and they've got a problem somewhere else. Because if they're both doing those two things, they can handle anything. Anything. With a grin. If they're doing both of those. Care enough about your spouse to confront them. Remember what Ephesians chapter 4 said, let not the son go down upon your wrath. If you love your spouse, if you want to maximize your marriage, if you want to honor God, don't let yourselves go to bed and sleep without resolving your differences. Every night, clean the slate for that coming day, if there's anything to clean. Ephesians chapter 4 gives us that wisdom. Walking together requires agreement. Can two walk together except they be agreed? No way. So then, we need confrontation to have agreement, and we need agreement in order to walk together, which a husband and a wife do by the nature of their relationship. Every night, make sure you're in agreement with your spouse. It takes two to fight. 
I've mentioned that trite little statement before, already this evening. Since it takes two to fight, make sure you end a fight. Look at Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 14. The wrath of a king is as messengers of death. The wrath of a husband is as messengers of death. But a wise man, or let's substitute a wise wife, will pacify it. It takes two to fight and to have a conflict. If both parties could ever get a hold of that fact, they'd meet each other in the hallway, as I've mentioned before. If every wife realized, my husband is going to lose his cool, he's going to get upset about something I've done, he's going to be angry with me, I have purposed in my mind that when he does, I will pacify him. If you need help on knowing how to pacify a man, talk to some of the other women in the congregation. There are ways it can be done. And it starts with a soft answer. And it continues with reverence. And it goes from there. Love him out of his anger. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 2. The fear of a king is as the roaring of a lion. The fear of a husband is as the roaring of a lion. Whoso provoketh him to anger sinneth against his own soul. A woman that provokes an already provoked husband sins against her own soul. That's ridiculous. Pacify him. Verses that would apply to husbands are verses like I've already read from Romans chapter 12 where it says, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And if you have an enemy, love him. If he thirsts, give him something to drink. If your wife's angry at you, take her out. It's the last thing you, you think, I don't know that. Take her out. Get a babysitter for the kids and take her out. Shower her with goodness to overcome the evil of whatever she's angry about. If wives were doing that and husbands doing that at the same time, like I said, they'd meet in the hallway and we wouldn't have problems running two days, three days, two weeks, and a month underneath. They'd be resolved. It takes two to fight and to keep a disagreement going. One can end it. The Bible says that. The Bible says a wise man can pacify the wrath of a king. You want to talk about any, anyone more powerful than a king? A wise man can pacify it. How glorious are you in your marriage in passing over transgressions? Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 11. The page is worn slick. We've used it many times. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. I'll lay this one on the men. Your wives are going to transgress against you just about daily. In some way, they are not going to meet with your expectations. Many times, if not most, will not be malicious. They're just not going to meet with your expectations. That's why Peter told men and husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. Know that they're the weaker vessel. 1 Peter 3, 7. Are you glorious as a husband? You liked it when I preached about glorious women with long hair submitting to their husbands. Are you glorious husbands? 
that are able to defer their anger and pass over a transgression. Just forget it. Maximize your marriage, maximize your relationship with God. You want to maximize your marriage? Get close to God before you try getting close to your partner. If you're not close to God, you will have a strain between you and your partner as far as being compared to the maximum marriage. You want a maximum marriage? You make sure you have a close relationship with God. If you are walking in the flesh, you will not fulfill God's order and God's commands regarding marriage because you'll be in the flesh. You will not be walking in the spirit. If you walk in the flesh, God will not be blessing your relationship. First of all, you'll not be doing what you should be doing. Second of all, God will withdraw his blessing. And the Spirit of God, instead of being that great agent of comfort and unity between you and your sister, your spouse, that Holy Spirit will turn you two against each other to punish you for walking in the flesh. You maintain a close relationship with God and you'll maintain a close relationship with your wife because the two don't go one without the other. It just doesn't happen. I've told my wife for many years her responsibility to remind me, and I said it already once today, didn't I, about women being a help, meet for their husbands. You want a good husband? Promote the spiritual relationship of your husband with God. He'll be the greatest husband in the world. If you neglect that, if you let him neglect it, if you don't help to provoke him toward that end, he will not be the kind of husband he could be. A godly man is a man that will be a perfect husband. You let the world creep into your home and you don't fight it off women with all that you have, you will destroy yourselves. You make your husbands godly and you'll reap the benefits of it. May God bless us to maximize our marriages.